0: The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it Real Chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. And today, not only do we have a special guest, but a special guest host, none other than our founder and chairman, Jim Weiss. Today, Jim will be talking to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb, as many of you know, is the former commissioner of the FDA. He is a partner at NEA. He is on the board of Pfizer. And most relevant to our conversation, he is the author of a new book called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. You can find out more about the book and where to buy it at uncontrolledspread.com. And this conversation couldn't be more timely given not only the continuation of the pandemic and the Omicron uh, strain of the COVID virus, but also we had some relevant news today. Um, Probably will be within 24 hours of when you're hearing this podcast. Uh, The 15th of December, we found out that JP Morgan Health Conference is going to be made virtual. We also got news that it looks like Dr. Rob Califf, who is going through congressional hearings to be approved as the next FDA commissioner, is looking like it's smooth sailing. So combined with that, we're going to talk about why Dr. Gottlieb wrote the book, why it's more timely than ever. We'll cover a little bit of the communications that have happened between the FDA and federal government and the public during the pandemic. Media's role, the mRNA platform that two of the vaccines used, and what potential other purposes they can serve. And then a fun question about the future of Dr. Gottlieb's career and, and where he feels most comfortable. So grab a cup of coffee, listen in, and we hope you
1: enjoy the show. Scott, thanks for coming and talking to me. You know, there's so much to cover and but I wanted to start with the reason we got together in the first place, which was really to talk about the book. And obviously, today of all days, with news of J.P. Morgan Conference going uh, virtual this year, coming up again, and with Dr. Rob Califf, you know, now potentially becoming one of your successors, the book's clearly more prescient than ever. You know, can you just sort of give us a little idea about why and what prompted you to write it?
2: Well, look, the book was an attempt to try to look at the more systemic uh, shortcomings that left us vulnerable to this pandemic. There were a lot of things, a lot of capacities that we thought we had, preparations that we thought we had made that when the pandemic that we long feared finally materialized, we found out that many of them, as I say in the book, was sort of a technocratic illusion. I mean, the, the sort of the... Um, stockpile is a metaphor for a lot of it, where we thought we had stockpiled the things that we would need, but we had prepared for the wrong pathogen. But I think a lot of it comes down to um, shortcomings in the structure of government. There was a perception that CDC was going to be able to respond to this crisis, that it had the operational capacity, for example, to develop and deploy diagnostic testing at scale and help um, jumpstart the, the manufacturing of therapeutics and vaccines, that it had the capacity to collect information and surface analysis in sort of a real-time fashion that would inform the decisions that we needed to make, not just about policy and public health, but about our daily lives. And the agency just didn't have those capacities. And this isn't necessarily a knock on how they responded, although I think there were mistakes they made and shortcomings in just their execution. They were just the wrong agency. We didn't have the right agency to respond to a pandemic. We We had thought about contingencies in a national security context, and we have agencies And government apparatus capable of responding to national security contingencies, even acts of bioterrorism or, you know, attacks on the homeland, certainly overseas contingencies. We don't have anything comparable when it comes to public health. We don't look at public health through a national security lens, and we don't have an agency that has the the sort of real-time analytical capability and the operational capability to respond to a crisis that is national in scope. If this had been an outbreak in an isolated city, if it had been an anthrax attack or an isolated bioterrorism attack, those contingencies we had planned for, radiological attack, we had exquisite planning for those kinds of contingencies. We didn't have the proper planning in place for a national epidemic of this kind of scope outside of the setting of flu, where we had clearly prepared for flu but we failed to see how our preparations for flu wouldn't be applicable across the range of pathogens that could potentially threaten us. And so this was, you know, just in closing, this was an attempt to try to lay out what went wrong, how we can do better going forward. And really, I thought that it would be um, coming out in a time when we would be contemplating how we prepare for the next pandemic. That hasn't begun yet. Hopefully we begin that conversation after we get past the current crisis.
1: Well, we're we're not past it, right? And one could argue that that are we in a new one? I wanted to ask you with the rise of Omicron and and then, you know, the, what appears to be a surge around Delta, you know, because of Thanksgiving and being indoors, do you think we're prepared now given what's coming?
2: Well, I don't think we're in any better prepared from the standpoint of our overall posture. Um I think we're better prepared from a policy standpoint, because we now recognize what our shortcomings were, in the near term, we're better prepared against COVID because this is not March 2020. We have an exquisite toolbox. We have highly effective vaccines. We have monoclonal antibodies. We have hopefully soon orally available therapeutics, including one by Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of. We have massive sequencing capabilities. We have diagnostics that have been forward deployed and into people's homes. So we have a much different toolbox to deal with the COVID threat. I don't think we're better prepared to deal with the pandemic threat um, writ large. And in terms of what what happens next, I mean, Delta is doing what we thought Delta would do. Delta um, was an epidemic that wound its way through the country. The South and the Southeast are largely through their um, Delta wave. The Pacific Northwest is through it. The Southwest is coming down very rapidly. The mountain states, which a month ago, Colorado was lit up, they're coming down in the Plain States. Where is Delta now? It's finishing up its epidemic spread through the Great Lakes region. That was the hardest hit region two weeks ago, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. Cases are clearly peaking there. And now it's it's um, entering into the sort of last uh, piece of the country that hasn't truly had its Delta way, which is New England and the tri-state region. I think that there was this perception that the tri-state region would be impervious to Delta because it has such high vaccination rates. We're seeing that's not true. I don't think the... That the new york tri-state region is going to look like michigan or florida but it's going to have a sizable delta wave that's apparent right now and we're sort of in the thick of it maybe two weeks away from a peak in the tri-state region the the concern is though that the delta wave is is sort of happening apart from the omicron wave and omicron is going to then sweep through and and won't necessarily crowd out delta it's going to coexist alongside delta um and the best predictor, that's going to be what happens in the UK right now. They're seeing Omicron cases clearly go up. If we see Delta cases start to go down, that's an indication that Omicron's crowding out Delta. But I think that there's a lot of people who are concerned that these two pathogens are distinct enough that they can, um, you know, sort of spread alongside each other. Like you often have with the flu, where you have different strains of flu that could spread within the same season and don't necessarily crowd each other out because the immunity they induce isn't, um, isn't cross-protective.
1: Right. I mean, one of the things then, you know, with all this going on and why we got together on the podcast is I am a comms, you know, professional as you were and continue to be anyway, and wrote the book to help. What should companies, perhaps the government, do better to communicate with the public about all of this? You know, how to test, how to prepare what what to do about the drugs uh, you know obviously now we've got the the antivirals coming what do you think the approach should be it sounds like you don't think the public private partnership is where it needs to be but how should we all be working with our clients in terms of advising them on how to communicate around this wave well i think You know, it's
2: very clear right now that I I think it's clear that this is going to become an endemic virus, at least for the foreseeable future. I mean, maybe eventually this will recede into the backdrop, but after we acquire more immunity and maybe the virus starts to burn itself out, but now it appears this isn't going away. And this really is a transition year from the pandemic to an endemic state where this virus is probably going to continue to be a constant menace. It will probably, you know, sort of morph into more of a seasonal threat that that'll be around the wintertime when coronaviruses typically circulate. And we're going to have to deal with this. We're going to have to probably get revaccinated every year, like we do for the flu. We're going to have to be mindful of spread of this, and you know, think about how we protect indoor environments in, in the peak of COVID and flu season from the risk of spread of respiratory pathogens. We're going to have to be more vigilant around testing, not just for this, but but the flu. I think we're going to have to change our practices around respiratory health, and it's not going to be sort of a reshaping of society, but it's going to be a a heightened level of vigilance that we never really applied before, perhaps mistakenly, because we let flu infect far too many people and cause far too much death and disease, where if we had had taken some simple precautions in our daily lives during flu season, we probably could have mitigated that. But I feel like from a calm standpoint, we have, um, through this pandemic, not been as sort of fully transparent about the uncertainty around this as we should have been. You know, we, we let a perception persist that it was always, you know, the end was always right around the corner. You know, all, once we got through this wave, prevalence was going to decline, wouldn't come back. And then once we got everyone vaccinated, it would go away and the vaccines would, would sort of provide immunity in perpetuity. And now the booster will provide immunity in perpetuity instead of, you know, acknowledging the uncertainty around this and the fact that this could be something that we just have to continue to deal with. And so what's happened is when we've had these, when we found out the vaccine, the immunity from the vaccine started to decline and we found out, you know, other sort of truths around this, uh, that it was airborne and, and cloth masks really weren't that protective. You needed to wear a higher quality mask it it came as a surprise to the public and it sapped i think confidence of the public and public health officials i don't think that we were sort of candid enough about the uncertainty and some of that was the fog of viral war but i think i think the unfortunate thing is some of it was quite deliberate so for example there was a reluctance we we had an indication that immunity was declining in july i remember you know going on face nation and talking about this and I got a lot of pushback from the public health community. And what people were saying to me privately was, if you talk about the fact that um, this immunity might not sort of persist in perpetuity, it's going to discourage people from getting vaccinated. That wasn't a good reason not to talk about it. Um, you know, what we should have been talking about was the fact that this might be something where it's a three-dose vaccine or people need to get, especially certain vulnerable people need to get revaccinated on some kind of um, you know, annualized schedule. Uh, we needed to sort of acknowledge what we didn't know. And we we didn't right. do that.
1: Uh, you know, and it's interesting. I, I listened to you talking and I assume, you know, my friend Monica Gandhi and you sound similar to her on, you know, that front. You know, she talks a lot about, hey, mask up when you go indoors. I was at Steph Curry broke the record last night at, you know, uh, Madison Square Garden. I was lucky enough to make it there since I'm a San Francisco, you know, Bay Area person. And I was very happy to be there. On the other hand, I was like in a very tight crowd, but I had my mask on and I have my three vaccines. So I felt better about how I was prepared to go into that. And obviously they were checking vaccine cards and all the rest, but who knows? I mean, that's an imperfect science. So, um, you know, I was sitting behind a couple of young boys who clearly weren't going to be boosted. Right, um, so I kept my mask on more of the time, but I enjoyed the game. It was great, you know. So I'm just saying, you know, are there practical ways? Does this have to feel like life and death, like it did, or can we just learn to live with it with better communication, like you're saying?
2: I think we are learning to live with it. I think if you look at, at the general public, people, um, you know, are being prudent on, for the most part. People who still have concerns about the risk themselves or the families of people around them, but we're getting on with things. I mean people are going back to work, back to games, back to restaurants, but they're taking some steps. I mean people are getting vaccinated, people are wearing masks. And I think that's what things are going to look like. I think we're this we're sort of transitioning into a phase when people are going to learn to live with this risk and this risk will be reduced over time. I mean hopefully this omicron is the last major wave. I thought delta would be the last major wave because delta was so contagious. We thought all the future mutations would happen within the Delta lineage and then Omicron comes along, which represents sort of divergent evolution that was happening completely apart from Delta and all the other variants. I mean, it wasn't evolving along the the tree that was existing. It was evolving apart from that in some sequestered uh, community, either of animals or individuals in some animal reservoir or chronically infected individual. So, you know, now we have to contend with this. Hopefully we don't continue to see these sort of sequestered pathogens reemerge into human circulation that are completely apart from the evolutionary tree and the immunity that we've acquired so that we end up as a society having some baseline immunity from vaccination and through infection that makes this a more tolerable risk. But I think you're starting to see society um, grapple with this risk right now in a um, in a more constructive fashion in terms of how do we do what we want to do and layer on an element of protection to protect ourselves and hopefully protect the community, and and that's that's right. your your basketball game,
1: right? And I think I saw something, maybe it was from CDC, where they said, look, you know, if you were in contact with someone who had COVID, that doesn't mean you don't go on. You you know, wear a mask, get tested, figure it out. If you have symptoms, it's when you don't go in. It's kind of like it's sounding like how they say the flu: don't go in if you have symptoms or you don't feel well, and you know that it sounds like it's settling out that sort of life and death um, concern. But can we really say at this point that there won't be further mutations? There wasn't flu. I would imagine that, you know, we just, we have to just say, like you said, time to get real. There will be future mutations,
2: but there's also going to, we also now have a society that has a pretty big wall of immunity. You can't sort of Uh, and especially the United States. I mean, the United States is a lot like the UK in terms of the kind of composition of immunity we have. We have people who've been infected and vaccinated, people who've had three doses of vaccine, um, people who've been infected with different variants. We look a lot like the UK, with the exception that the UK probably has, well, the UK definitely has more people who've had three doses of vaccine, but they also have people who've had vaccines that don't seem to be as effective against Omicron. So what happens in the UK is going to be very instructive to the, what happens in the U.S., but after you have these successive waves, after you vaccinate a population um, you know, several times, you're building a wall of immunity that is going to be a backstop against the excessive spread that we're seeing right now that's sort of shutting down life. The problem is there's still vulnerable communities, and, and there will always be vulnerable communities, and we need to figure out a, a way to protect those communities We have the tools to do it, Um, you know, with with older individuals or immunocompromised individuals. I think we should be making far more aggressive use of the monoclonal antibodies, using them as a prophylaxis in those individuals. Give them a dose, get them through the winter, get them through a covid surge or the covid season. We know they work. Um, Why we're not doing that, I don't fully understand. You know, we're going to have an orally available drug that's going to be hopefully effective at reducing the risk of bad outcomes. We need to make sure uh, people who are vulnerable have access to testing and timely access to those therapeutics. So we need to figure out a way to target it to the, to the communities that are most vulnerable. And that's that's sometimes hard to do because the communities that are most vulnerable are sometimes the communities that also lack access to care. So we need to think about how we target our policy to the pockets of vulnerability. And the last major pocket of vulnerability in terms of not immune, naive people are toddlers. They haven't been vaccinated and they, by and large, haven't been infected at nearly the same rate as adults because we've done a good job protecting our young children. So we need to also, I think, be be very mindful of that. And frankly, I'm worried about that community when it comes to Omicron, because part of the reason I believe Omicron looks less virulent, less serious, is because it's mostly infecting people who have baseline immunity, either through vaccination or through prior infection. But what happens when it it gets into pockets of society where there is no baseline immunity? Is it still going to behave like a less virulent infection? And we don't know the answer to that question. That uncertainty scares me. And the last pocket of vulnerability in terms of being immune naive are children.
1: Well, let's, let's you know, come off that scare point. You know, you and I both have dealt with the media for a long time, continue to. What did you learn during the pandemic about media, the media writ large? I mean, you know, how can we apply some of what, what happened here uh, lessons on how we communicate and work with the media in the future. I mean, anything strike you?
2: Look, I, I actually think the media did a, a good job through this pandemic in sort of, a, you know, moments of uncertainty translating what we were learning to the public. Uh, I think the social media proved to be, you know, problematic in terms of being able to propagate misinformation, but it also proved to be a, a medium where experts were able to share very useful information in a very timely fashion. A lot of the sort of early learnings, if you think back to, to 2020 in March and April of 2020, when we didn't have good clinical data coming out of the CDC or public health agencies, a lot of the clinical data was being shared on Twitter, where physicians were going on med Twitter and sharing their learnings uh, about treating patients with COVID. And that, that ended up disseminating a lot of information. Obviously, those became tools for the spread of misinformation as well, but, you know, that was mostly a function of people being able to consume the media that they want. If you wanted to get useful, practical, truthful information, you were able to get that from mainstream media and from social media. If you wanted to be in a corner of the universe, um, you know, that believed that the vaccines didn't work and hydroxychloroquine was a cure you could sequester yourself in a pocket of information, in a stream of information that only told you um, those answers.
1: Well, you know, I wanted to also uh, press on. I think I generally agree that media has been more of a positive than a negative, even though I think obviously some feel they, they tend to maybe possibly overhype it a little bit, you know, go a little far. But I think once your point about experts, which is why we're doing this podcast, you know, getting out there with useful information that's balanced and not uh, alarmist, I think is really helpful. What I wanted to ask was, you know, you saw the news around Moderna's uh, flu vaccine, you know, I guess flu drug vaccine based on the mRNA platform didn't quite achieve what we'd hope to see. Um, What are you most bullish on, you know, relative to the use of mRNA in other areas um, beyond COVID?
2: I didn't really look carefully at the Moderna announcement and you know, and, and being on the board of Pfizer, I want to be careful. But I didn't my perception right, yeah. at the top line wasn't that it was um disappointing. It was that I think people's expectation is that the mRNA is going to give sort of a supercharged response. And if it just gives a response commensurate with existing vaccines, that seemed to be the disappointment. But you know, there's no reason to believe that the mRNA is going to induce. Um, an immunity that gives you sort of an excessive antibody response, but it could potentially give a more durable antibody response. It could be a more flexible platform um, for multivalent vaccines. It could allow you to develop antigens against multiple targets on the virus. We just we just use a single antigen in our existing flu vaccines, and that's why they're not as protective as they potentially could be. So the the mRNA platform and technology, I think, still holds out a lot of promise for other. Uh, other applications, including flu. And I didn't take anything from that announcement as sort of closing the door. In fact, I thought it was reinforcing in that it demonstrated that you can get it in sort of an antibody response and that it's immunogenic in the setting of flu. So I think that that opportunity is still open. And Pfizer, as you know, is pursuing that opportunity. In fact, um, it was a flu program that they ultimately pivoted into coronavirus. But I think what the mRNA platform, one of the observations about the mRNA platform is that the... Uh, immune response you get seems very consistent across age groups. And one of the startling things when I first saw the data from the Pfizer vaccine was when you looked at every age group, the immune response was almost the same. You never see, you usually don't see that with a vaccine. Usually you see the immune response uh, fall off in older individuals. Here was a vaccine that produced a robust immune response in 30 to 40, 40 to 50, 50 to 60, 60 to 70. It was kind of um, equivalent across age categories. And so You start to surmise that this could be a very effective platform for uh, developing vaccines for older individuals. So think about the diseases that affect older individuals, you know, zoster, cytomegalovirus, all different kinds of viruses that uh, predominantly cause more severe outcomes in older individuals. This could be very relevant to that.
1: And what about cancer and heart disease? You know, you see it now, you know, what happens with these things, you know, they, oh, it can be, you know, put in your toothpaste and, you know, it's like, it cures everything. So what what do we think mRNA really can do more at large?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was being used for those applications before it gained widespread adoption as a platform for developing a COVID vaccine and, and for vaccinating against uh Viral pathogens, and so that development work's still going on. Any place where you want to uh, in, use uh, mRNA to be translated into proteins to induce an immune response to some um, some bespoke protein, this platform is mm-hmm. amenable to that. And you know, in the setting of oncology or, or other kinds of more narrow uses, where you don't need to. Necessarily induce a, an extremely robust immune response, but a very tailored risk immune response, the mRNA can be very well suited to that.
1: Well, let's put our optimist hat on. You know, over the last two years, the pandemic presented, you know, a lot of life and death choices to us as a society, but we seem to have risen to it. I think that's the positive half glass full look at this. So, your book. Certainly there's lessons learned, but you sound, you know, positive about how ultimately we've responded as a society uh, to it. Now, the question is, is there a big picture issue like global warming or health equity where we could apply some of these lessons learned and really, you know, learn from the book and, you know, that should people read your book and apply some of the lessons there? to well, solve some of these other societal issues.
2: Yeah, I think in terms of, of broader societal issues, I think what the pandemic demonstrated is what many of us working work in public health knew, which is that there's components of society that are excessively vulnerable um, to infectious disease, that lack access to care, that face systemic obstacles, including uh, you know systemic bias and getting access to care. And we saw COVID creep into those pockets of inequity and bias, and cause disproportionately bad outcomes in certain communities. And so I think when we sit down to consider how we make ourselves more impervious to to this kind of a risk in the future, and we're going to have to do that because this pandemic proved that the U.S. was excessively vulnerable, that it, it crowded out all of our other national priorities, it set us back, it hurt us geopolitically. I mean, the, the impact of this is enormous, it's changed the course of world history. We've got to make ourselves... Um, more resilient in the future to these kinds of threats, a key part of that is going to be addressing those inequities. We can't have a society where a large portion of the population is is made excessively vulnerable and expect the population um, to be more secure. And so I I think part of the consideration for how we address these social issues that impact the delivery of healthcare has to be through that same national security lens. And when you're looking at things through that lens, you start to think about making investments differently. So I hope we we take that that vulnerability more seriously in the future, and that that's going to translate into things like just how to get better care delivery, how to use the reimbursement system to get better care delivery in underserved communities. Um, part of the challenge here that we had was we couldn't get testing into certain communities, we couldn't get vaccines in certain communities, so certain pockets of our society were late to get access to the technology that ultimately helped ameliorate this threat.
1: And maybe we've you know through getting out into those areas, we've we've helped society more writ large right you know the pandemic you know forced something that we might otherwise not have ever addressed
2: i think that's right i i, I think the pen well it hasn't forced it yet i think the pandemic made very clear um the vulnerabilities we have and and why they exist to to a broader section of people that weren't necessarily paying attention to this but hopefully are paying attention now
1: right and the book says let's get at it right you know now There's no time like now. We can't wait, you know, for the next one to come. We have to get ready now.
2: Right. Well, I was hoping the book would come out at a time when Congress and policymakers were actively considering what the pandemic plan of the future would look like. That discussion hasn't started yet. I don't know exactly why. Maybe because in the throes of the current pandemic, it's hard to contemplate how to better prepare against the next pandemic. I think it's also going to be very hard to get a political consensus around the proper role of public health and public health agencies going forward, because there's a lot of skepticism now of public health officials and any, any proper plan for the future is going to be predicated on empowering public health agencies, empowering public health officials. And there's going to be a lot of people who are very skeptical of that notion now. So the debate hasn't started. I hope the book would be part of that debate. Hopefully, it still would be. But I, I was figuring the timing of the book would be sort of coincident with you know Congress taking this up, and it just hasn't happened. It probably is going to have to wait another political cycle before we could take this up in earnest.
1: Well, I wonder, too, getting the word out at the state level. I mean, you know, watching different states' reactions to it. One of the reasons I always felt, you know, we couldn't react to it is that people didn't really know how to, you know, pronounce epidemiologists before, you know, this thing happened. And, you know, from news stations all the way through to government officials, you know, they were caught off guard because science, medicine, health, these are just foreign objects to them. and now. Do you think you're going to see more, you know, physicians getting into public life? I mean, I think Dr. Oz was running. I think I just <laughs> saw. Or do we think, you know, there'll be more, uh, you know, physicians on staff? I know I've certainly talked in the corporate world about, you know, having medical directors at a time when you wouldn't have had that now as a role at a big company. Yeah, I, I think that more
2: companies are going to have to have. Companies already had sort of visible medical roles, big companies, but I think that that or roles internally. I think those roles are going to probably have to be more visible because if we have a society that's more cognizant of these risks, corporations are going to have to provide some visibility on what they're doing to address those risks, especially consumer-facing corporations. So I do think that that's going to happen. You'll see more chief medical officers in in companies that don't necessarily work in a public health space, You know, amusement parks and things like that are going to have to take take on, uh, create a public health capacity. Um, I don't know that doctors or or providers are necessarily going to get into public life more than they did in the past. You see some people jumping into um, run for public office off of their experience with the pandemic. Um, But I, I do think that we're going to have to think as a society, build more public health considerations into daily life and what we do. And, and that's already happened.
1: Right. Um, so as a segue, you know, that's the public, uh, sort of the private sector's role and to some extent public. Um, since FDA, the new commissioner looks to be, you know, Dr. Rob Califf again, um, what do you think he's faced with here and, you know, it, what's needed from this position over the next three to four roles? What is the role of the FDA and and how do you think you know I've certainly talked to my friends there it sounds like they'll be funded and there'll be communications capabilities yeah you know, what do you think the FDA's role in all this
2: look i think he's coming in at a time when um hopefully this you know the acute phase of this pandemic will be starting to wind down and we're going to have to deal with the more chronic phase of this pandemic and get in place um a framework for dealing with this like we deal with the flu. I mean, there's a very clear, CDC and FDA have a very clear framework for how we grapple with the flu each season. There's a very sort of predictable approach to developing the flu vaccine and looking at flu, flu therapeutics and diagnostics. And we need to have that kind of stable footing for COVID now too, where we have clear work between US and international health bodies. For example, we might need a multivalent vaccine next year for COVID. Who's making that decision? You know, it's very clear how the decision about what variants get put into the flu vaccine is made. We have two meetings each year, one in the Northern Hemisphere, one in the Southern Hemisphere. WHO oversees it. You know, there's six labs around the world, including FDA operates one of them that developed the seed stock for the vaccines. I mean, we have this very predictable approach and this handoff between the public and the private sector when it comes to flu. We have nothing like that when it comes to COVID. We don't even have a decision-making capacity. We we have the WHO browbeating Western countries for how they're approaching their vaccination efforts. So we are way behind on coming up with an international framework for making these decisions. As long as the WHO is, is shooting at everyone, how can you develop an
1: international consensus about how we approach this? Yeah, I mean uh, that's there's lots to do, um, but you know I I know time is short, and I was going to end on a question that was a little more directed to you, the author of the book. Um, you've reinvented yourself several times. I mean, you were you know obviously had a lot of roles, career roles over time. You had different roles at FDA, and was the, you were the commissioner now a venture partner at NEA. A thought leader. I mean, you've. I, in many ways, think you've been a big, positive, you know, voice that has helped us all through this uh, pandemic. So thank you for that. And now you're a board member at Pfizer and Aetion and other places. Would you ever see yourself moving into the C-suite at a publicly traded company or start a company? Is that something you're thinking about doing or? You know what can people expect to see from Scott Gottlieb in the next few years?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what what what's next for me. I'll I'll tell you, I um, probably the th- thing that I enjoyed the most during my career was being at FDA and um, having a team of people that I helped lead um, behind an important mission, and that was a really rewarding thing. Being able to recruit people. Um, and promote people and empower people to do to work on things that were important and interesting to them. Uh, that going into work every day was exceedingly enjoyable um, because I, I was felt like I was running an important organization. I was doing important things, and it was, and was working with great people. And so you know, going back to a setting where I can. Uh, lead good people behind a good endeavor. That's something I'd want to do in the future at some point.
1: Oh, good. Well, I'm not recruiting you right now in my <laughs> role of, uh, you know, pastor and uh, chairman here, but, um, I, I will definitely keep that in mind. And I do look forward to meeting in person when, when some of this, uh, you know, next wave dies down. I'll be in New York a lot more, and uh, I hope to, to connect uh, one-to-one. It was great. Thanks so much for, you know, being on today, and we'll, we'll get the word out about the book because it, it really clearly is an evergreen and important book uh, that, you know, many of us can learn many positive lessons, and again, thanks again for what you've done. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
0: Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.